I'm excited to have Harish Hande on today's Let's Break Good podcast episode. Harish is an Indian-born social entrepreneur who in 1995 began on his mission to eradicate poverty by promoting sustainable energy technologies in rural India. Today, the organization he helped co-found employs over 500 people, has impacted more than 500,000 poor households, and benefited over 1 million people. Harish, who has a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Massachusetts in Lowell, has won numerous awards for his work in last mile rural energy, including the Social Entrepreneur of the Year in 2007 by the Schwab Foundation, the 2011 Ramon Magsaysay Award, and just last year in 2018 was awarded the prestigious Skull Award for Social Entrepreneurship. Welcome, Harish. I want to break free. Thank you. Thank you. Harish, let's get started. Yeah. Uh, my, my first question for you is about when you first realized that you wanted to have purpose at the heart of your professional career. Where did this all start for you? See, I, I went to uh, the Indian Institute of Technology in India. And, you know, I went there. Uh, it's a highly competitive exam. And then you realize that you went there because 300 million Indians did not write the exam. And so, and it was one of the cheapest because it's highly subsidized by government of India. Two things. One, 300 million children did not have the option to write the exam. They were poor. Number two, it was subsidized by the poor who were actually buying salt and sugar with that taxes uh, that I led to my, uh, my studies in the Indian Institute of Technology. So my actual stakeholders were the poor of the country. And that's when I, when I thought that whatever I learn, it's, it's for them, my original stakeholders. And that, that was the heart of the mission. It sounds like your drive to have purpose in your career started with your education and actually realizing that the people who weren't able to get the education that you had, as well as that the subsidies for your education was being provided by poor people who were buying salt and sugar, it sounds like. Right. I'm, absolutely. And today, it's an unfair and unjust world because we are like in a running race and we say we are and we are at 50 meters and the and the poor are at minus 50 and I say and say we have won the race i mean this non-inclusive world is what was kind of hurting me in many ways and and the level playing field was not there in in the education that i got or the opportunities i got i think that became the purpose of the mission in many ways Maybe you can now walk us through what comes next up until you begin uh, your social enterprise, Selco. See, then, I mean, I came to the U.S. to actually learn about solar energy way back in 1990. And there were practically two or three schools which were uh, teaching about sustainable energy. At that time, UMass uh, Lowell, um, then I think Wisconsin and one of those places. So when I started my master's, I had a chance to go to the Dominican Republic. And though I had come to the U.S. to learn about large solar, in 1991, in Dominican Republic, I saw these 10 or 15 houses, which are all solar-powered individually, and, and, and they were very low-income families who were actually paying for solar. And this is where the concept of decentralized energy came up and came back to the U.S., changed my thesis completely from large solar to small 
and also was feeling guilty conscious that I had not felt uh, about what it meant to be without electricity. And so I, I, and I also didn't want to do a PhD that I had not felt completely. So I had requested my professor, Professor Jose Martin, to, 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 I mean, so that I can I go back to India and Sri Lanka to actually feel what it means, and to write a PhD that had a heart in it, and then that PhD led to the concept of of Selco. During your your master's education, you're able to get this experience in the Dominican Republic, see firsthand the opportunity that poor people can have solar. And so you come back and you radically change your studies. You change your your thesis, what you're going to work on. Where then does that become something you're, you're studying and you're thinking about to something you actually want to act on and create a business around? Yes, I mean that's that's the. I mean it. It was more than just a business. I would say, when you're doing PhD and especially in in an engineering school, saying that it was all about technology, and then I said I just wanted to. I mean, a little bit of a sense um, that it was not only about technology; it was about economics, it was about social structures, it was about behavioral patterns in the rural areas, which I really wanted to feel. And so then that's when I bought a ticket back to India and Sri Lanka in in 1993. And through my travels in in Sri Lanka and India, where then you realize that um, if you had to do anything, whether it was a business or a venture or a not-for-profit, you realize that what was happening in the ground was very different to what your analysis on an Excel sheet would show. And like even with the importance of what time does the bus come? What if there are only two buses a day? Why would actually people go to a cousin's wedding even if they didn't have the money? Where did that so-called willingness to pay? I mean, we we talked about Excel sheets. We talk about uh, like, okay, so analyze which is cheaper, which is expensive. But the concept was that a lot of us worldwide never make a decision on an Excel sheet. But once it came to sustainable energy, it was always about Excel sheet. And that was a contradiction. And that's, that made it exciting and said, let's create Selco along with the co-founder Neville and see how do we break those myths. This is something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, which is getting out and experiencing it. That something you've created in the classroom or in a sterile lab doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work in real life. People, you know, when you go out and you see it firsthand, it's just so different. So that definitely resonates with things that we've talked about before. You mentioned Selco. Can you you know, explain what Selco is, how it started, how it got up and running, how it's evolved over time? Yeah, so I mean, it started. I met uh, while doing my field studies in 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 India and Sri Lanka. And whether I was doing field study, I don't know. But because it was like uh, I I was kind of um, learning a lot from the the villages that I was visiting, and 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 then you also get humbled that how little you know about anything on on practicalities of why does the water flow or why do people collect the way they collected water, why were the cropping patterns different the whole decision-making in the villages, uh, et cetera, or anywhere else was very, very different to what you studied. And I somehow felt that a lot of time we were making a decision on the poor. I mean, especially in a country like India, we had replaced the British colonism with the middle class and the upper rich in India who would decide for the poor. And so said, said let's create a, 
organization that would actually push those boundaries. And a metal gentleman called Neville Williams uh, in 93, um, he was kind of an activist by nature and he he was running a not-for-profit called Self and and then came up with the idea. So let's start Selco in India, Solar Electric Light Company after Edison's Electric Light Company is to destroy three myths that the poor can't afford technology and the poor can't maintain technology. And the third myth was you can't create a commercial venture or financially sustainable venture while trying to meet social objectives. And that led to Selco in 94 and registration in 95. When you started, what kind of conflict did you come into because you were trying to break these myths? Uh, it's something we talk about a lot in terms of breaking good. You have to change mindsets. So maybe you can talk to me a little bit about ways where you were able to change those mindsets and really prove that those myths were, were actually false. One is the mindset on the opposite side of, of, of my, my own mindset of arrogance of education. Uh, the question is, we, we, we sometimes get into our own um, egos of, oh, there's an education, I've got into Indian Institute of Technology or a master's or a so-called PhD. Like any of on, on us did a PhD on sugarcane, we will all be called an called a expert of sugarcane. A farmer doing 30 years of uh, uh, sugarcane will never be called an expert because he or she does not have a PhD. See, this arrogance, the educational arrogance was something that needed to be humbled upon, a lot of us, in fact. How do we break that myths that well, it's the, the there's a difference between learning, education, and certificates that you get, master's or PhD? Then the other factor was was how do you, the best financial les- lesson that I have learned is when a street vendor said three hundred rupees a month is expensive, but ten rupees a day is fine. The question is how do we define what is affordability? We confuse between cheap products and affordable products. I think this is where we had to change the mindset of designers, engineers, policymakers, that the way we define everything on an Excel sheet or the way we define so-called markets needs to be re-looked at by putting ourselves in the shoes of the poor rather than deciding on their... See, it was always about a solution trying to fit a problem. The mindset was, can we first... what? Let's define the problem, work with the poor as partners, to come up with a solution. And that is what we wanted to push the boundaries or, or, or break those myths or challenge those paradigms of thinking. So are there, like, I really am interested in this, how you've defined cheap versus affordable and how you start breaking these kind of old held mindsets of who's an expert and, you know, how can you define your customer are there any stories you remember from the early days of Selco when you're starting to install and create these solar, um, you know, setups for these customers? Are there any like, you know, stories or customers that stand out in your mind that really proved how these myths were just so, you know, poorly held? Yeah. So, for example, two examples. One from an end user perspective. I had a end user like a like a like a street vendor, right? A street vendor's economics was like. If you go to her and ask her, uh, would you buy a 5,000 rupee solar system, which is what a one light system would cost and equivalent to $100, $120. And she would say, oh, that's very, very expensive. Right then. But if you look at her calculations in terms of what she spent on a daily basis on kerosene, that was around between 10 to 15 rupees and multiplied by 30, that's around 450 rupees. 
that's that was equivalent to at that point of time ten dollars a month on energy right and now and that's because her affordability patterns were on a daily basis she's she if you ask her today for 10 rupees she'll give you and tomorrow if you go and ask her 20 rupees she cannot give you 20 rupees she'll again give you 10 rupees the issue for her was i'm willing to pay 10 rupees uh, so for a solar system if financed over a period of 3 to 5 years the same 5000 rupees is equivalent to 10 rupees a day versus what she spends 15 rupees a day on a kerosene, on kerosene so the question was not technology the question was not affordability the question was did she have the right financial product so it's a it's it's a piece of the puzzle that we need to look at we sometimes so oh she's not able to afford a 5000 can we make it 3000 using subsidy or can we give her a cheaper product that's not the point was are we looking at what the problem was the problem was financing for her in the same case in another area when there was a colleague of mine who who came from the villages who was running one of our offices uh, and 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 a client came in and said i want a three light system looking at him what his what his profession was a three light system would cost around 200 dollars my colleague could easily make out that 200 dollars was not something that the family could afford but he says wait let me come to your house he went to the house he went to the top of the house broke a part of the house put one light so that the light could be seen in all the three rooms and that my colleague said it's it's simple he needs light in three rooms he doesn't need three lights so the thinking of design the thought process and suddenly solar became affordable had had my colleague just said okay it's 200 dollars the guy would have always said solar is so expensive it's not affordable for me but now suddenly solar became affordable he actually needed just one light he needed light in three rooms so the, is that those concepts destroyed the myth was is solar a product or what is the need of the people is it a financial loophole or is it a design issue everything then you start thinking like an anthropologist there's another myth that i you know that you mentioned and i'm wondering if you can go into this one a little bit more which is that a social venture cannot run as a commercial entity right when you started, did people view you as a nonprofit, as a social entity, and did they challenge you because you were acting like a business? I'm wondering any kind of pushback or that myth and how you came to understand it and then break it. So the question is, uh, in in 1993, there was no concept of something called social entrepreneurship or social philosophy, right? And today, also, we say that there's nothing called social. It's entrepreneurship and others are antisocial, right? Why do we have a separate... Uh, uh, tag for social entrepreneurship. Every entrepreneurship should be inclusive, um, where the benefits are according to what the stakeholders are. The moment we tilt any part of the economic value to a certain stakeholder, you will lead to what we call it as disparities in the world. We said, let's create a business that somehow that actually provides value to each stakeholders, whether it's the uh, the investors whether it's the management, whether it's the end technician and, and the end user, are we able to keep them every everybody in a straight line? We we basically look at it and see where how do we make it every piece of the chain financially sustainable? And then can we actually run a run a company? So so we started in 94, 95, the same year as Lehman Brothers. We still exist. Right? That that actually shows what it means to be sustainable in the long run. How do you look at, see, for us to provide to a street vendor, 
we have to make sure that the value that we are get, giving her is something that using that value she can earn more that we are not pushing her into more poverty same thing my technician colleague who is installing is he or she getting a value from the organization up to the top management so we look at financial sustainability at all levels and see and that's what then we add it up and and that leads to a financially sustainable organization i'm hearing how you're creating value at all levels how did you then start to scale this up as you realized that this approach was working that designing you know your systems and thinking about your customers you know and how you could design for them and to make it affordable to them what was the scaling process like how do you go from you know installing a few systems to scaling up to where you are now which is you know 500 employees and hundreds of thousands of systems the, the, the trick was not in terms of where the market was the trick was are we creating the uh, are we actually creating an atmosphere that the type of people join us it was see we never hire people we, for us selco is a platform and say that do you have two things common sense and passion we we are not going to look at your resume we don't care whether you're a fourth year dropout or you are you have a phd from mit are you creating a value for the organization and especially for the end user being the poor do you have the passion do you have the sustenance to actually hear no 9 out of 10 times on a daily basis push for solutions at the worst case scenario and that's when when the set of people who who've joined us early and later on who are very much mission oriented passionate are something if you look at today out of the 500 employees the early 100 or the top even the, for example the top 50 have actually not changed in the last 18 years or 17 years so it's it's the it's saying that we we it's it's a it's a type of people it it completely makes a difference for us it's we put in lot of efforts in in grooming in mentoring the youngsters and believing that they will stay in the organization for next 25 30 years and how do we create that atmosphere if you want to do something else do it here it sounds like a people driven growth is how you got it done and i could you maybe dig into a little bit more in terms of you said you groom you give them the skills anyone can come and do it but well, once you come in with the right mindset around that you know having the passion what are the other key characteristics that create someone that's able to really break good and create great results at the at your organization and from an indian perspective there are two things one is you break the concept of like in india we've not only looked at caste system but we also created two other castes one is the caste of degrees oh are you a masters or are you a phd uh, and the other caste is about uh, speaking in english right so we wanted people to come in and break those myths was i don't care who the person who is sitting in front of me what degrees or where does he am i able to gel with him or her how do i look as poor as partners and innovators and number 3 is that i am a solution provider i i i cannot go to the field and say oh sorry i'm a mechanical engineer i'm so sorry i'm a finance i'm I have, a, i have a management in finance if you are going to the rural areas or to the slums or you are going to somewhere to create a to look at a problem you have to come come back with a complete solution or create partnerships for solutions because it's not like tomorrow a tomato vendor just because the tomato prices go skyrocketing she cannot say oh boss i have no other choice but not to sell anything because i am just a tomato selling expert she otherwise her three kids will starve 
she will sell potatoes the question is it's a solution anybody who comes in not only destroys those myths that boss i don't care what degrees i have i don't care whom do i report to whether i'm reporting to somebody 10 times less qualified than me number 2 when i'm going to the rural areas boss i am coming up with a complete notion of what the problem is a solution is because any delay in my solution that means another person or other family is going into poverty for another day that's because of my fault i think if people can think that way the pressure uh, of taking that boss it's not about the pressure of targets is a pressure that every day that we don't work for an extra family that an extra family is getting into poverty for one more day i think that's the type of people we look at you've talked about now the skills and the mindset what does it take to create customer centric solutions for the poor and why is it better to view them as customers rather than just a charity case needing a handout it's like treat them as not only customers treat them as innovators or treat them as entrepreneurs treat, treat them as partners for a solution get into the house and saying boss it's like when you go into house you're you're not like okay i'm going to sell you a four light system you are an architect and a designer okay which light do you want for which part okay who is cooking uh, where is your uh, swing machine which part of the living room um it, why is it black in terms of okay if you whitewash it rather than a 7 watt light you need a 4 watt light so once you start customizing it then people feel will actually feel that you are actually creating a solution for them and you are a partner and once you do that that trust because it's it's like it's a difference between need and wants if i need i want something that can be standardized i want an ipad or i want an iphone you standardize it when i need something like for example the light in your room or in your bedroom is very different to the light in your neighbor's room it's very customized needs have to be customized and and that can only be in a trust i mean very simple example in the united states is how do you choose a lawyer or a doctor you don't pick up your yellow pages and say i'm choosing this doctor or lawyer you actually a friend has told you or somebody it's on the basis of trust when it comes to needs of the poor it's completely on the basis of trust an example being one of my technicians wedding 200 clients had come for the wedding and for us that's that's it that's that's the measure of success so along along this journey to change the mindset to what you're talking about what kind of obstacles did you face you know how did you remain resilient and have you seen the mindset radically shift since 1995 since you began or do you feel like there's still a lot to go until in terms of breaking these myths no i think uh, in terms of myths still lot to do because lot of people still come up with solution and try to fit a problem to it and then and and confuse scaling and standardization uh, today we talk about scaling of products we should actually talk about scaling of processes and uh, so that that leads to decentralized entrepreneurship decentralized services which will lead to decentralized democratization of services around the world because more you standardize from a product pros- product perspective you're going to monopolize a lot of thought process in the world and that shift change and the beauty lies in decentralization and i think that's the mindset that mindset that we have been trying to change it has and the other barriers for example is is lot of the investors or the funders think very unilaterally unilaterally and from a very specific time bound perspective so many of the solutions that actually come out 
are forced to come out are a band-aid rather than the solution for the disease itself, which may, which might take much longer time rather than their quarterly cycle or a yearly cycle of a program manager in a funding or even an investor's exit strategy of less than two years. If it was so easy that if you are following the Wall Street or or what has happened in the Bay Area, we are not going to solve problems that have been there for many, many years in terms of poverty, climate change crisis. I think a little bit of a longer period of thinking and solutions cannot have the same solutions as IT and an exit strategy. I think combined to a long-term strategy with, with solutions is what we will have to change the mindset of a lot of the youngsters who will actually go into engineering or become investment managers or grant makers in, 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 in funders. There is definitely this, you know, desire for instant gratification that we're Absolutely. so used to getting immediate notifications, immediate feedback that it's hard to have that patience and discipline to look at the long term. And climate change is long term. No, please go ahead. I, sorry, the climate change is long term. You cannot, like, for example, in, in central India, there has been drought for four years. There is cannot be an immediate solution for such things at all, except forcing people to migrate to Bombay or large cities. That's not a solution. So we need to come up with solutions that will take time, patience. Otherwise, otherwise we were all going to create some sort of an, I mean, not a good sort of social unsustainability. Instant gratification is an okay as long as you get emails, so you're in the IT, in part of the IT. But climate issues, poverty issues, we need to go back to old-fashioned solutions. Amen. I, I like that. You know, sometimes the simple long-term solutions are the ones that can have the biggest difference. Can you talk about where the organization is today? What kind of scale are you at? What kind of impact are you making with with Selco uh, today in, in 2019? And maybe where do you think you're going next with the organization? There are two parts to the organization, Selco. And though they're different organizations, one is called the Selco India, which is a for-profit social enterprise. And the other part is Selco Foundation, which is the not-for-profit. Both are very disconnected, no connections. But I'll tell you why. Selco India itself, in the next three years, has a, a target to look at 200,000 new clients in, in, in the southern states, um, in, in Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu, and Karnataka, where it's already working in. And, and to, again, further, uh, in the next two years, it's going to go deeper into the economic strata. We break the economic strata into three parts, poor, very poor, and abject poverty, saying that how can we link up livelihoods? We've done lighting, great, for the poor, that's okay. But if we have to really look at very poor and abject poverty, there needs to be a linkage of sustainable energy and livelihoods. How do we come up with a better blacksmith blower uh, for blacksmiths that are solar powered, a sewing machine or a lathe machine or a, or a butter churner or silk weaving machines that the poor can, can get out of poverty? And how can sustainable energy be linked to that? And that's, that's what the Selco India is going. It's, it's actually owned by three not-for-profits. And all the profits go back to the organization. And the way we keep out 20% of the profit every year for the employees, and we start distributing the profits from the lowest earning employee. And wherever it dries up, it dries up. So the bottom part of the company basically owns the profits in many ways. So that's what has led to loyalty. The foundation, the Selco Foundation, which is how do we inspire 
other youngsters to not repeat the mistakes that we have done over the last 20 years in other parts of india and the world and also innovation in terms of better butter churner or a more high sophisticated blacksmith blower what is the type of financing that a blacksmith blower needs versus a sewing machine those are the innovations that the foundation does you know the biggest subsidy that google has got is the internet because google did not pay for the creation of the internet and if internet does not is does not exist google will not you and me and the us military and everybody else paid for the internet who creates the ecosystem for energy access to succeed who takes that brunt and that was the creation of the foundation so selco foundation works on four different areas uh, uh, well being livelihoods education and health think of this like this like tomorrow nobody should have ministry of sustainable energy or ministry of energy it should get it should dissolve into and so the ministry of health should have a subset on ministry of sustainable energy ministry of education should have a subset of ministry of energy so when you design a new health program sustainable energy should be part of it from day one not as an afterthought so that like you don't have a department of racism it's a it's it, it and racism is not an afterthought it's from day one you talk about inclusivity so that's the role of the foundation is to push the thinking process of sustainability as a part of every other needs of human society fascinating so there's a few things that i want to just highlight that you you've talked about that as you move this business to the next level that is that beyond the idea of lighting via solar it sounds like you're talking about powering businesses via solar and that you're allowing people who maybe are doing certain small businesses small jobs that bringing them sustainable energy to allow them to to do that is it at a lower cost? Is it at a more efficiency? Can you maybe help first connect how some of these trades and bringing them that solar energy, how does that take them out of the poverty? How does that take them up to the economic ladder? Uh, two examples. One is, for example, if, if we, uh, you know, you know, there's an Indian bread uh, called the roti. So, so, so we've, we've actually worked, there are roti rolling machines, which are highly inefficient. Uh, and so they, they guzzle a lot of electricity. And when you design solar for such machines or anything else, people blame solar to be expensive. Nobody blames the swing machine to be inefficient or a roti rolling machine to be inefficient. So what we do is we basically work with a partner to make that roti rolling machine highly efficient, then work with a local bank or a financial institution to come up with the right financial product for the end user and work with the people who train the women or men who who want to be roti rolling entrepreneurs, what are the different markets that they can actually sell the roti to, whether it's a local restaurants or local residences, schools. So we put all these pieces of the puzzle and the solar-powered roti rolling machine then becomes an economic activity for that poor family. And solar actually democratized not only entrepreneurship at that family's level, at the household, and second, it actually led to them in getting increased incomes without bothering whether the electricity exists or does not exist. So same thing that we do in terms of uh, a swing machine or it doesn't matter where you are, a solar powered swing machine or even, for example, a printing center with a, with a, with a Xerox machine or a, or a photocopying machine where the poor have to travel unnecessarily for eight hours to just get a small 
printout of their so-called social security number or the Aadhaar card, a local entrepreneur can actually start a business of a solar-powered printing kiosk where people can come and take their photograph at one-tenth the cost had they gone to the nearby city. So you can create multiples of democratized entrepreneurship using solar, leading to economic gen- economic activity immediately for them. Same thing can happen in a, in, a, in a dental. Today, for example, a dental chair has 120 features which guzzles more electricity. You put it in a large hospital. Even if you gave dental services free, it takes one day for the poor to travel. The bus charge and loss of economic activity is expensive for the poor to come in. Had somebody designed a solar-powered, sorry, a DC foldable dental chair with only four features, we could have actually provided dental services right at the doorstep of the poor at one-tenth the cost. Such democratizing health services. That's the beauty of sustainable energy. It, it, it basically democratizes. It, it, it challenges the present delivery of education, health, livelihoods, entrepreneurship. And that's what we're trying to, even like a solar-powered, high-efficient projector, you can go to any rural with, a, with high-quality content Instead of your blackboard, can I have your white wall? And suddenly you start seeing whale. You can see physics in a remotest part where you tell the teacher, don't worry. By the way, it's run on solar. Don't pay much attention to it. You have eight hours of uninterrupted education. That's what we want to push. That, that sustainable energy democratizes everything. It's almost like the solar kind of approach is just the first you know, domino in changing the mindset of what your business is and how you can be an entrepreneur doing it, which I think links very well back to now how you can see the poor as entrepreneurs and how these people who are working, it's not just about bringing them solar energy or sustainable energy, but it's having them look at how they do business or their, their opportunities to create business in a different way. Absolutely. There was one other thing that you mentioned, which made me think that not only are you kind of breaking good externally, but also internally. You talked about how you reinvest your profits to the bottom of the pyramid inside your company. Can you talk about how you came to that decision and you know what are the benefits of doing that? See, simple thing. See, I, I might have been heading the organization. I spend seven to eight hours on a daily basis. My colleagues who are technicians work between 10 to 12 hours on a daily basis. Who deserves more? And why do we just because I got an education because my parents were in the right place that then we talk about management stock options and et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah. And that's when you start creating these divides in the world, right? And that's when, when and, and present disparities are increasing. And that's because our models of business and of equity distribution is completely wrong. And that's when we said, can we experiment? Unfortunately, we are known for solar. But we, we basically wanted to push that businesses can be run a different manner. Yes. And sometimes you say, are you a leftist? Are you come? Boss, you're telling me we are leftists. We are, we are 20 years old. We have been profitable for the last 11 years. Big companies are still not profitable, but they are market-oriented. But we are leftists. So I don't sometimes understand the market <laughs> jargon. Okay. So, so for us, that's led to loyalty. That led to profitability. I mean, it, it makes business sense to create a long-term enterprise which is providing long-term solutions, financially sustainable, by thinking that manner. Well, I find that it's your internal engine, your internal setup, 
your external mindset, it's like almost a, an engine that feeds back on itself. And that's a very, very interesting model. I'm wondering now if you can talk about a little bit about the environmental impact that you think Selco has had over the years and what you believe the role for business should be in fighting climate change. See, I think see the climate change is a big threat that we, we and and the biggest uh, the biggest client or, or or the segment that is suffering today is is the poor. You and me can get away from by either taking a job in a different country or a different type of job, but as of today, we are really not. I mean, in a in a indirectly getting impacted. My our lunch is not getting affected. Our dinner is not get. My child is not getting affected in, in the direct manner as the poor are getting affected. I think that's what we said is, can we use uh, India as an R&D, which India being a paradox of an overdeveloped and an underdeveloped country. We have the we have quite a few rich people. We have the world's most poor uh, in, uh, in terms of poor people. We have some very so-called modern cities, uh, two, uh, two places where our HDI, the Human Development Index, is below South Sudan. I think we said, can we use India as an R&D center to create solutions that are socially, financially, environmentally sustainable, where the bottom 2 billion people in the world can actually show to the rest of the world that what actually social and environmental sustainability means by creating solutions that are that are climate-friendly, that are socially and financially sustainable. So we believe that the poor can actually source <coughs> solutions, whether it's a solar-powered roti-rolling machine, whether it's a silk-weaving center, whether it's a solar-powered projector in a rural area, can we come up with these these solutions which are financially sustainable? Like, for example, a, a school's um, a projector, solar power projector has to be financially sustainable at a state level that are they able to get more services per dollar or per rupee? And so that's where I think um, climate solutions are not going to come up from just pure technology, but it's it's a combination of technology, the markets, the financial products which I believe that the two and a half, three billion people can actually show. It's a very fascinating concept. So you're saying that the people who are being most impacted by climate change, the poor, actually can be the innovators that help us to turn the tide back on climate change. Absolutely. Whether it's a drought, how do you look at, uh, suppose there are seven farmers who get together and buy a larger solar water pump, which pumps water in, in, onto a storage tank during the daytime. And during nighttime, use drip irrigation so that you avoid daytime 40% evaporation. You use efficiency of water utilization using drips. You create cropping patterns. And and see, just having, uh, and, and then it's solar powered. So it's not about just solar powering water pumps. It's about the concept of cropping patterns, drip irrigations. All this consumption patterns is is, is going to be something that will come out from the bottom 3 billion people. Do you think then that there's still a role for big business? You know, these are our biggest polluters, the ones that have the most capital behind them. Do they have a role? And how can we convince them to get on board with this vision that you're talking about? I think, see, that they, they, they do have a business in, in a lot of the technologies and a lot of the innovations hasn't happened in many ways. And But I don't know whether how much of large businesses or the large utilities have a role. I mean, even you look at the U.S., I mean, there's a decentralization happening in a very quiet manner. I mean, if you look at rooftop solar, right, it's decentralized in a different manner. And U.S., whether like it or not, will have to look at decentralized entre entrepreneurship if the true economy has to grow in the future. 
I think the big utilities will have big companies will relook at innovation, and they have the power right now to create different. I mean, get away from standardized thinking about okay, how do I do iPads all over the world? What are the decentralized solutions in terms of technology and finance that needs to happen? They have the money; they can actually do it. Whether they do it, they have the willingness because there's the so-called shareholders. That's a different pattern. But I somehow believe that if they don't take it now, there is going to be disruption from many of the rural areas of the world that will force them to do that. Well, I think that time is coming, uh, and uh, they, to get out ahead of it for their own. You know, I, I agree. I, I believe it needs to be an existential crisis for these companies to change. Otherwise, the shareholders will always be there. But as soon as it becomes an existential crisis for them, maybe we see a shift. Uh, you know, I think that's the, the, the worst and the best of, of humankind is most, most of us are really, really great when the threat is right in front of us and really, really bad at a, trying to actually prevent it and avoid it. Uh, that's a, the kind of the best and the worst of the, the human condition, I think. Absolutely, and and I hope I mean hope I mean hope the next generation of shareholders are these millennials and youngsters who who will bring in the pressure also. All right, Harish, I got another question for you before we get kind of towards the end here, which is, what are you breaking good on today? What are you passionate about? Uh, what what are things that you're currently involved in, um, maybe beyond just Selco? No one. I mean, I mean, for me, uh, sustainable energy is what it is uh, on a daily basis. So, looking at where are the other para, uh, other other verticals that we can actually integrate sustainable energy thinking into. So, as I mentioned, it's livelihoods in um, education and health and well-being. So, we're also looking at disasters and disabilities. Uh, how do we look at sustainable energy as a very critical role in? in managing disaster like how do you come up with the most efficient matern delivery maternal delivery rooms in earthquake zones or after a typhoon has hit that pushes innovation not only in building materials design uh, equipments and efficiency of 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 that itself right so for example so personally in, involved with couple of areas in the northeast where a lot of disaster strikes in terms of floods along with some that we are trying to work in the philippines because we believe that philippines is going to be the will have the highest number of climate refugees uh, but the innovations that happens during the disaster is that's going to that's going to then be used for other other things uh, other so disabilities disaster and then some of the financial innovations in these areas yes excellent what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out on their career and purpose who are just getting going what advice would you give them when they're starting when they're starting uh, their career i think I, I tell a lot of the youngsters that you really don't have much responsibilities because once you get married you have to get too many responses just go out and 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 see what it is without having a bias of what you learned unfortunately a lot of people when they start the career it's about oh i am a mechanical engineer from mit or am i an electrical engineer from institute of technology or i am an mba from some institute was go the the next two years before you start your career start with a whiteboard and 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 start looking at this whiteboard and then think what you actually you are you want to do and and you'll see the lot of so-called problems as opportunities and solve them the easiest that you can do is join a job don't do that 
solve some issues, problems, so that after 25 years, you don't have to repent, oh, I did nothing. I think as soon as you're starting, so-called starting a career, start with a clean, clean slate and don't use your degree as a baggage. Harish, I think those are great uh, parting words for the audience. Uh, again, Harish, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for all the work you've done with Selco India, Selco Foundation. Uh, and appreciate your time and words of wisdom for everyone on the Let's Break Good podcast. Thank you. Thank you so for doing this. Thank you so much. But life still goes on. I can't get used to living without, living without, living without you by my side.